Good morning, everyone. Hope you're doing well this morning. For those of you I don't know, my name's Todd. I'm glad that you are here uh, with us here at Hilton Head Island Community Church. Glad that you have joined us on this weekend after uh, 4th of July, and I hope you had a great uh, weekend celebrate, I'm sure, with family family and friends. Uh, today, we're continuing in our series. Uh, this is actually the third uh, installment of a series that we are in this summer called Life in the Minors, and uh, we are taking hopefully a, a fun but also informative look at a portion of the Bible that's not often studied um, in church or privately or, or uh, you know, whatever. Uh, we are looking at a portion of scripture called the Minor Prophets and what God was doing with those men then and uh, what he is doing uh, through them with us now. And so uh, before we dive in, would you just join me in a word of prayer this morning? God, thank you so much for all that you're doing in the course of human history. God, we thank you so much for um, these words of these men, maybe obscure men coming from obscure places, normal guys, but they had a huge impact on announcing to the world what you were doing. And God, I pray today as we dive into one of these uh, four that we're looking at this summer, Minor Prophets, I pray that you would, that your Holy Spirit would give us the ability to hear from you. God, lead us into wisdom and into understanding. And God, I pray that you would challenge us where we need to be challenged, that you would encourage us where we need to be encouraged, and that you would convict us where we need to be convicted. And God, I pray that today will be about you. Help us to not be focused on the things of this past week or the busyness of the upcoming week or any attitudes that we have that might keep us from hearing from you. God, I pray that you would be high and lifted up over these next minutes together. And may you pierce our hearts and teach us what you want us to learn today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You know, in our day and age, um, we often use words without really thinking about those words. And we often use words, certain words, so often that because we use them over and over and over again, um, they begin to lose their power. They begin to lose their meaning. And I think kind of at the top of the list of words that we use over and over and over again, kind of wildly without any thought, are, are two words, um, love and hate. I mean, we, we love seemingly everything, and that which we don't love, we hate, right? Um, we, we love our coffee, don't we? I mean, mine's Starbucks, French roast with a shot of espresso. Just if you wanted to know that information, in case you wanted to stop by during the week and bring me a French roast, Starbucks Grande. Okay, not the big one, but the, not the short one, the medium one. Okay, so I love Starbucks coffee. Uh, you may have a certain restaurant that you love. Uh, we, we may, some of us who get into sports, we may have loved watching um, this World Cup. It's been exciting. It's been a fun thing. Um, some of you students, you're like, man, I'm, I'm in love with that girl or that guy in third period, you know, Spanish class, and you don't even really know that person, but you're in love with them, and so we kind of throw that word around, and the more we use it, the more we use it without thought, the, the more it loses 
its power. Love is one of those words that we use, and it really loses its power. The more that we use it, the more that we use it without thought, the more it loses its meaning and its power. Same thing with the word hate. You know, we, 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 hate, um, we, we hate it when it rains on a Sunday when we wanted to go to the beach after church, of course. And so we hate it when it rains. You know, I hate it when it rains. Uh, oh, we hate inconveniences. Uh, we hate driving down 278 on July 4th weekend and every car is from Ohio and they're driving slow and wild. And we hate driving down 278, even though the people from Ohio are spending money that we live on, right? Okay, thank you. If you're from Ohio or anywhere else, we're glad that you're here. We, <laughs> we really are. We use these words, love and hate, and we use them without thinking. And the more that we use them without thinking, the more they lose their power. But I want you to hear this. We can learn from God's word things about him, things about his character, but we can also learn attributes of God. And one of the things that we need to learn about God, that we should learn about God, is there are certain things, yes, I'm going to go ahead and say it, that God hates. And there are certain things, certain things, certain things that God hates, but also certain things that God loves. And I want you to hear this today. When we see that emotion, when we see those words or anything that kind of is in the line of those words, whether it's love or whether it's, you know, adore or whatever, or, or hate or anger, if it's used by God, we can know that that is authentic, it's real, it's not empty, and it's not watered down because God's word is true. And we have to look at all of God's word, the whole thing, if we really want to understand what God was doing with human history. Today, we're going to be looking at one of the four prophets that we're looking at this summer. Last week, we looked at Jonah, and we found out from the life of Jonah, from the experience that he had, that delayed obedience is really disobedience, unless, unless you obey right now. Like when God says to do something, if we delay, that delay is really disobedience. That's what we learned from Jonah's life. Unless we act on it now, then it's obedience. And we learned a lot from Jonah's life. I want to encourage you to go back and listen to that message. Today, we're going to be looking at a prophet by the name of Micah. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Micah. We're going to be taking a look at selected passages throughout Micah. If you don't have a Bible, it's not a problem. We're going to have the words on the screens here today. And we're going to be taking a look at what God was saying through this prophet. And you're going to see that these words hate and this word love carries great weight with it. And it has great meaning to us because what this prophet does is he lines up what God hates with what he loves right next to each other. And because he does that, and because he does it in such an amazing, beautiful, God-ordained way, we can learn a tremendous amount about what God was doing in the course of human history. It's interesting. These minor prophets make up about roughly 15% of all of Scripture. 
but they are the most, one of the most underread and understudied um, group of books in, in, in all of Scripture. There's 12 of them. We're looking at four this summer, just to bite off little pieces at a time. We're looking at four this summer. But it is one of the most understudied and underread portions of the Bible. We love Proverbs, and we love Psalms, but we often will fast forward all the way to the Gospels and miss the, the great message of God to human history. And so my prayer is today, as we look at this book called Micah, as we look at this man who was on mission for God and speaking to God's people, I pray that we would learn something about the narrative of God and man, but also I pray that we would learn something in our own lives of how to how we can apply his words to our lives. These minor prophets are interesting men. They many of them come from obscure places. They're, they're not too dissimilar from minor league baseball players, and that's why we've coined this series "Life in the Minors." We're taking a look at these guys who may have come from obscure places. They might be very normal kind of guys, very bland kind of normal guys, but they have a huge impact. Just like many minor league players eventually do, they have a huge impact in terms of the whole story of God and man. And so we're looking at Jonah and Micah, and the next couple weeks we'll unpack Zephaniah and Zechariah. And I haven't chosen them arbitrarily. I prayed through how to present them, and particularly the order of how we're studying them goes in chronological order. And I think it'll give us a glimpse into what God was doing in the time. To help us understand, let me give you a little bit of context of where Micah was writing in the course of human history. Now, this is roughly about a thousand years before Jesus was born. The nation of Israel was united. And they were united. They had asked God for centuries. They had asked God to give them a king. They looked around at all the nations and the people went and, and asked God to give them a monarchy just like all these other nations had. They thought that would be the best way to govern themselves. And so God answered their prayer, and he gave them a monarchy. And he set up Saul as the first king of the nation of Israel, and then David became the second king, and David's son Solomon became the third king. And things were relatively speaking, things were relatively speaking pretty, pretty normal. It's kind of business as usual in this nation, the Hebrew nation, the Jewish people in the nation of Israel. But then when Solomon's son, who became king, Rehoboam, came along, all of a sudden in that time of Solomon and Rehoboam, all of the people uh, in, in the nation of Israel, or a bunch of people in the nation of Israel, 10 tribes of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel decided that this guy named Rehoboam should not be king. And so rather than falling under that God-established rule, they kind of paired off and established what is called the Northern Kingdom, and they took on the name Israel. And they broke off from the original group of people who were the nation of Israel. And so you all of a sudden have God's people, these 12 tribes that have, have come together to form one nation. All of a sudden, a little bit over, uh, a little bit less than a thousand years before Jesus came into the world, you have this kingdom that's divided. And you have a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. And so the prophets that we're speaking of come along during the time when Israel was divided. And so God sent these men to speak his message during a very tumultuous time in the Hebrew nation, both kingdoms. 
And so we see these minor prophets, and many of the other prophets are speaking to, some of them speak just to Israel, the northern kingdom. Some of them speak just to Judah, the southern kingdom. Some of them speak to both. Micah's message is directed towards both of them. And we see Micah come onto the scene about 750 years before the time of Jesus. And at that time, the northern kingdom of Israel was taken captive by a group of people called the Assyrians. They had invaded, they had taken over one of their main cities called Damascus, and all of a sudden, that northern kingdom was taken over by a brutal, evil people called the Assyrians. Meanwhile, in Judah, in the southern kingdom, they were afraid for their lives. They were afraid that the same thing might happen to them, even though they had aligned themselves with the Assyrians. There were enemies and enemies and enemies of all of God's people, both the northern and southern kingdom. And God's people during a time of fear and during this tumultuous time, did what we often do during times of fear. We act irrationally. And so God's people began to act irrationally. They began to stray from God's word over and over and over again. And they, they would return. And then they'd stray from what God wanted and they'd come back. And these prophets were used to help the nation of Israel and some of the other nations come back to God, and it was about 750 years before Jesus was born that we find this one named Micah speaking to Judah, but also speaking a little bit to Israel, and fear was the main emotion of the day. What can we learn from Micah? Let's dive in this morning. You have your notes that'll be on the screens. Let's learn something from this man who wrote so many years ago that I think is applicable not only to the people of that day and age, not only applicable to human history, of course, over all time, but I think it's applicable to those of us who are Christ followers today, and even some of you who may be searching or may be skeptical. Let's begin with his name. Micah's name was used in an interesting way in his writing. His name literally meant, who is like our God. So the name Micah literally means, who is like our God. And so this man who was used by God to communicate the message of God uses the meaning of his own name to really set up what he's about to write about. And so you'll see as we talk that we're going to keep coming back and back and back to who is like our God, Micah's very name. Let's dive in and take a look at Micah 1. We're going to be reading verses 2 through the first part of verse 5. Let's dive in this morning. Here he says, you peoples, all of you, Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Verse 3, for behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and he will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. Verse 4, and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured out a steep place. All this is for the transgression or sins of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. Aren't you encouraged this morning? Isn't that great news? I mean, God is coming down and he's going to destroy the earth. This is what Micah begins with. Happy Fourth of July, everyone. <laughs> Cynthia and I were watching Independence Day yesterday, kind of cleaning the house, and I thought, well, I could just show the first part of that movie and like we would get a picture of what, you know, the, Micah was talking about here. The whole earth destroyed. And we're supposed to glean some kind of understanding from this? Listen, I want you to hear this this morning. The words that Mike is writing were real. God's anger, not towards his people, but towards their sin, 
was very real. And we have to, listen, we have to understand that God hates sin. We have to understand that God hates sin, that he is angry because sin exists. And I realize that right now in this moment, some of you are probably going, oh boy, I'm breaking out in a cold sweat because this is the kind of message that I heard growing up. This is why I left church. is because all I heard was about the judgment and the anger and the hatred of God. And there was nothing else that I ever heard in church. And this is why I left. Hang in there with me. I promise you, hang in there with me. I'm sorry if you fall into that group, and I'm sure that there are some of you who are here today that that's your church experience. The problem with that, the problem with that is that you never heard the rest of the story. And that is that because of God's hatred of sin and because of his anger towards sin, his love and his compassion towards humanity hold so much more weight. His compassion is so much more meaningful in light of the fact that God hates sin. It's your first point this morning. When we understand God's anger towards sin, we can better understand his compassion towards humanity. You see, in light of our sin and God's hatred towards sin, his compassion and his love is overwhelming. And so hate and love aren't meaningless, are they? Hate and love aren't meaningless. Anger and love are not meaningless. They're very meaningful because God hates sin so much that we deserve, we don't deserve what he has to offer us. We'll take a look at what he has to offer us. The other thing that some of you may have grown up in is the, on the other extreme, all you heard about is God's love. And that's awesome and that's great. And God's love is so huge. It extends so far and he loves all of humankind. We'll take a look at that in a moment. But if you didn't hear it in contrast with his anger, you won't understand the full extent of how much he really does love humans. There are a few things that Micah referred to that God hates about sin. And we're going to take a look at four of them this morning. I, I, my prayer is, is that some of these would be very applicable to your life. The first one is this, that God is angry when people retaliate against other people. God is angry when people retaliate against other people. Uh, look at Micah 2, verses 1 and 2. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and they seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. What Micah is saying here is that God is angry when we plot retribution against someone who's harmed us. I don't know about you, but if I've been hurt by someone, uh, it's, it, it's kind of um, like nice to go to bed at night, that night, thinking about how you're going to retaliate. Am I the only one that feels that way? Like it's nice to plan and plot it, isn't it? Like revenge is sweet, isn't it? But Micah is saying that that's not our role. In fact, throughout Scripture, we see that revenge is God's work. It's not our work. And so Micah speaks out against this. If you're here today and may maybe you want to exact retribution or revenge against someone who's harmed you, 
God wants to hear your story, but he doesn't want you to plot that revenge. Because once it enters the mind, it's so easy for it to go to the hands, isn't it? God gets angry when we plot revenge and we retaliate against other people. Secondly, God is angry when people fail to take care of people in need. God is angry when we as people fail to take care of people in need. Micah 2, 8, 9 speaks to this. He says, lately my people, they have risen up as an enemy. He says this, you strip the rich robe from those who pass trustingly by with no thought of war. Do you get the picture? Like what, what his people were doing was like taking from people who they thought were their enemies. They thought that they were going to have a war against. In reality, that person has no intention of war. He says, the women of my people you drove out from their delightful houses. From their young children, you take away my splendor forever. When we fail to take care of those in need, when we fail to turn our eyes against those in need, God is angry about that. We have a responsibility to do that. That's why we as a church have a lot of these partners, because sometimes we don't know how to help the needy. We don't know how to help those who are in need, so we partner with organizations like Deepwell and Volunteers in Medicine and St. Andrew's Soup Kitchen. And we partner with them to give you the opportunity to help someone in need. But I believe, listen, I believe it goes way beyond that. I believe it goes way beyond that. I believe this extends to you and your home and your families and to your life groups. We have one life group that adopted volunteers in medicine, and they keep their pantry of food stocked a life group from our church, that is not turning a blind eye towards those who are in need. That is helping tangibly and in a real way. But I think it extends even beyond that. I believe that parents, that we ought to show our children what it means to help those who are in need. You see, God is angered when we turn a blind eye towards those in need. And it's so easy to do it, isn't it? It's so easy to do it. Thirdly, God is angry when family members treat each other with hate. Uh Uh-oh, here we go. This just got real, and it just got personal. It's the end of Fourth of July weekend, and some of you have been cooped up with your families all week, in-laws and outlaws and the rest. And this one hits home, doesn't it? Take a look at what Micah says. I accidentally put Micah 2, verse 6. The real passage is 7, verse 6. That's my fault. Take a look at uh, uh, Micah 7, uh, verse 6. He says this, For the son treats the father with contempt, the daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. There it is. There's the outlaws and the in-laws. A man's enemy are the men of his own house. God is angered when we rise up and have disdain and hatred towards those in our own household. And those are the ones that we tend to hate the most, isn't it? They're the ones that bother us the most, right? I mean, they love us the most, but sometimes they don't act like it. And we have even our own family members and even our own in-laws who we may rise up and have disdain for. And if my in-laws are listening to this, I love you, mom and dad. Thank you very much for making me a part of the family. I love you all. I do. I have great in-laws. I really do. And I love them tremendously. But some of you struggle with this. And I understand that. We all understand those stresses that we have. God is angry when family members treat each other with hate. And lastly, God is angry when people conduct empty religious practices. God is angry when people conduct empty religious practices. Look at what he says in Micah 6, 1 through 7. 
And be aware that verse 8 we're going to take a look at in point number 3, and it has everything to do with the whole meaning of the whole book, verses 1 through 7. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you, mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Verse 3, O my people, what have I done to you? This is God speaking. What have I done that's made you um, go against me? What have I done that's made you turn yourself away from me and my word? How have I wearied you? Answer me. And then verses 4 and 5, he goes through specific things that God has done to help his people out. Things that he's done that's been amazing. And at the end of verse 5, the prophet here, Micah, asks a tremendous question. What then does the Lord require? What does the Lord require? Verse 6, take a look at verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old, with the Lord? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions or sins, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He's writing this because these are things in that day and age that they practiced, that were religious practices that honored God. And the prophet, please don't miss this, the prophet is saying here that you can be perfect in your religious traditions, but if your life outside the temple or church is the opposite of that, it is worthless. It is not worthy of God. He is speaking here to those who come in and look great in church and do all the right things, and they think that that pleases God. And essentially what he's saying, we're going to be taking a look at the next verse, verse 8, here in a few minutes, essentially saying, that is not what God's concerned about. Listen, God is not concerned about your religious practices if your heart is not with him. You can come in and do all the right things and go through all the right etiquette, if there is etiquette. You can go through all the right practices, if there are right practices. But if what you do here is not consistent with what you do out there, God is not pleased with that. Wow. That hit home for me over these last few weeks of studying this passage of Scripture. i got to be honest with you. It's tough. That's a tough one, isn't it? God is not pleased with that. Let's take a look. Point number two. Let me sum it up for a moment. God hates sin, but he loves the sinner. And in light of his hatred and his anger towards sin, his compassion towards humanity is absolutely overwhelming and is amazing. The problem is, is that we respond in a wrong way. Here's how we respond as humans. We either go to one side of the equation and go, you know what, I'm just going to live in my sin because I like it and I enjoy it. And I don't want to change. So I'm just going to keep on doing what I've always done. Or we go to the other side of the spectrum and we stand over here and we judge everyone else for what they're doing when our own lives are a mess inside. And point number two, Micah deals with that. He says, it is not our job to judge sin in others. Take a look at Micah 3 verses 1 and 2. And I said, hear you, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, it is not for you to know justice. We'll come back to that in a moment. It is not for you to know justice. 
You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones. And I'm not going to go to the rest of it because it continues like that. But essentially what Micah is saying here is that you're inconsistent when you judge other people and you have sin in your own life. And that's our tendency. We either go to one extreme and we like to just live in our sin and pretend like God has no standards or no values, or we go to the other extreme. We judge everyone else for what we see, and we don't look to ourselves. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament spoke of this very same thing in Romans chapter 2, verse 1. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn who? Yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Micah is speaking to us as God's people, those of you who are Christ followers, to not to go to the extreme and to judge other people, but look inside. Look inside and find where you may not be living the way that God wants you to live. So let's go back to the central question. Who is like our God? So far, Micah has told us the extremes. He's even given us examples of what angers God. He's given us an example of how we're not supposed to live on the other side. So what are we to do? Who is like our God? He answers it in Micah 6, verse 8. Take a look at point number three. It is our job. It is our job to be committed to showing acts of compassion and justice with a mindset of humility. It is our job to be committed to showing acts of compassion and justice with a mindset of humility. We've already seen in Micah 6, verses 1 through 7, that God's angered when people conduct empty religious practices. I mean, we can fall into that trap. Even even our church can fall into that trap very easily. We ourselves in our own lives can fall into that trap. But Micah doesn't leave up to the imagination what we are supposed to do. In verse 8, he answers it. Who is like our God? He answers it in verse 8. How are we supposed to be like God? He answers it in verse 8. It says this, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That's where we're supposed to live, in the middle. Not on the extreme of a lifestyle of sin, not on the extreme of judging others when we have our own stuff in our lives, but in the middle, loving justice, doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with God. He says to do justice. This is interesting because the word that he used in verse 3 that he says we're not supposed to know justice, now we're supposed to do justice, it seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? But what he is saying there is, in the word know, we're not supposed to know justice. What that means, please don't miss this, what that means is we are not supposed to be the judge or the maker of justice, but we are supposed to, in verse 8, chapter 6, to do justice. The word justice essentially means equal or equality. You see, we are supposed to look at the world as Christ followers, and we are supposed to help those who are in need. We are supposed to help those who are in need. We are supposed to call out those who have hurt those who are in need. That is doing justice. But he also says with it that we are supposed to love kindness. You see, we are supposed to 
we are supposed to do acts of justice, and we are supposed to do acts of kindness, and that means sometimes that we do kind things even to those who we don't want to do kind things to. God wants us to do that. That is his desire for us. That's how we can be like God, but he wants us to do it with a humble heart. And that's why in verse 8 it ends to walk humbly with your God. You see, if we do justice and we love kindness, we can get puffed up and arrogant and prideful about all the great things that we do. But if we do those things with the foundation, please don't miss this, of humility and walking with God, that's going to keep our blinders on. And that's going to allow us to do those things and still give glory to God and not take it for ourselves. That's going to allow us to do the things that we need to do for God and not take the glory for ourselves. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. That's where he wants us to live. But there's a fourth thing that I think we need to understand. Point number four, lastly. Micah prophesied of the one who is to be the ruler of Israel, and he is going to be their peace. Here's where the prophetic part comes in, in the long story of the God and man story. He's already talked about sin and iniquity. That's the first three chapters. But then Micah brings this to a resolution. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, 8, Micah was the prophet who predicted that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Of all the great towns and the great cities of Jerusalem and all these different places, he predicted 750 years prior to the time of Jesus' birth that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. That's how we know that this was a true prophet of God, because he was 100% right. He says this in Micah 5, verse 1, Now muster your troops, O daughters of troops. Siege is laid on us. With a rod they shall strike Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, there it is, Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. That means it was predicted or prophesied long ago. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Verse 4, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord the God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And look at the first part of verse 5. And he shall be their what? Peace. He shall be their peace. This is Micah, this prophet that's obscure, that only wrote seven chapters, beautiful poetry, beautiful writing, literature that he wrote, but only seven chapters of the Bible. He is predicting and prophesying the fact that the Messiah was coming and that his job was to bring peace. Think about it if you lived in Israel in that day and age. You were being held captive by the Assyrian army. If you lived in Judah, you were fearful that it would happen to you in an instant. And he says there's going to be one coming that will bring peace. I want you to hear this today. If you're here and your life is tumultuous and fear for whatever reason has overtaken your life, I want you to know today that you 
can have the confidence that you can have peace through Jesus Christ. Not temporary peace, not happiness that the world gives that you can find anywhere, but you can have peace. And part of that peace comes because Jesus' death on the cross was the reason that God could pardon our sins in the first place. That's where I want to end today. The bottom line is even though God hates injustice, even though God hates injustice, he sent the one, Jesus Christ, his son, to pardon the judgment that we deserve. Micah ends with the great part of the story. Verses 18 and 20 of Micah chapter 7. Who is like you? Who is a God like you? There's his name again. Pardoning iniquity and passing over. Please don't miss this. Passing over transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever. Because he delights in steadfast love. Love wins out, doesn't it? Love wins out if we make a choice for love. Verse 19, he will again have compassion. There's that word on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. You see, there is a message for those of you who are Christ followers. Micah says we shouldn't live in sin. He says we shouldn't go to the other extreme and judge, but we should walk humbly with our God, and at the same time, we should do just acts, and we should be all about kindness. That's where he wants us to live. That's where we bring glory to him. It's not about our religious practices. It's not about how good we think we are and how many times we've read the word of God, but it's what we do with our fellow man that matters. But there's also a message for those of you who are skeptics today. Maybe you're here and you've kind of been dabbling, you've been thinking about what this whole God-man story is and what God was doing by sending Jesus. And maybe today your story is this. You're having a hard time understanding it because the guilt that you have about your sins is overwhelming. I want you to hear today that God sent Jesus to pardon your sins so that one day, one day, one day, you can have eternal life because you put your trust and your belief and your faith in Jesus. That's the message of this obscure prophet. That's the message of this man's life in the minors who is proclaiming that God would take your sins and cast them as far as the east is from the west. And that one day you can have life in heaven because of what Jesus did on the cross. Father God, thank you so much for this story. Not just a story, but God, your word through your man to your people. And today, I pray in the strong name of Jesus for those of us who already are Christ followers, for those of us who have already said yes to you, God, I pray that if, if there's any attitude within us that draws us into a place of pride or hypocrisy or an inconsistent life, God, I pray that you would allow us to get to the place where we reject that 
And Father God, that we would get to the place where we do justice, we love kindness, and we walk humbly with you. And God, I pray especially this morning for those who may have come in here today and they right now don't believe. Or maybe they're starting to. Or maybe there have been a few moments in the past days or weeks or months where they've thought, yeah, maybe the story's true. Maybe Jesus was the Savior of the world. And maybe if I do get to a point where I do believe in him, my sins can be forgiven as well and I can have life in heaven with you. If you're in here today and you've been doubting or you're a skeptic, God's message to you is to find peace in Jesus. And listen, if you're in here today and you've put your faith and your trust in the fact that someone else can forgive you of your sins and remove the guilt and the shame, or perhaps you can do enough good to undo your bad of the past, I want you to hear today that the only place that you can find true salvation is through a God that sent his son and even though he was angry because of your sin his compassion was overwhelming my challenge and my invitation is that today you would decide to believe so if you're in here today and you want to ask Jesus to be your personal savior I'm going to invite you to do so over these next few moments. I'm going to pray a prayer out loud, and I'm going to ask that the room be quieted. Nobody's looking around. Nobody's moving just for a few more minutes. If you're in here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus to be your Savior, I'm going to pray a prayer out loud. And I'm going to challenge you and invite you to pray it quietly in your heart. It's a prayer that goes a little bit like this. God, thanks for making me. And thank you for loving me enough in spite of the sin that I have in my life, despite my failures in the past, despite how I've treated people in the past. Thank you for loving me enough to send Jesus to die for me. And today, I decide to put my trust in you. Help me to understand the fullest meaning of what I'm doing right now. If you prayed that simple prayer in this room with every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand for a moment. Just look up at me and raise your hand for a moment. I'm not going to embarrass you, I promise. If anyone prayed that prayer this morning, I just want to pray for you anyone else this morning. I won't call you up or call you out or anything. I just want to pray for you. Anyone else in this room? Those of you who prayed that prayer, just look up at me for just a moment. Just a moment. I want to encourage you in your worship folder, in the back of that folder, there's a way for you to respond. And on the back of that, um, there's a place for you to mark that you prayed a prayer to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior today, that you put faith in Him. I want to encourage you to fill that out. Take it back to the back the guest service desk they have a gift they want to give you that can help you in your new faith 
Father God, thank you for these today who have said yes to you, God. And I pray today in the strong name of Jesus that you would help us to find our peace, to find our rest in you. Because God, when we're weak, you're strong. God, when we feel small, you're the great one because we know that you are greater than all of our sins, all of our failures, and all of our problems. In Jesus' name I pray.